Hey founders, this is probably going to be a long episode because I have a lot to cover. So if you're in the process of raising funds for your startup, you're going to be looking at term sheets that are offered to you by the investors. And buried in there are a lot of terms that can have huge consequences for you and your company. They can lead to massive dilution, cause loss of control of the company, and even interfere with your ability to raise future rounds or sell the company when you get a good offer. So understanding exactly how each one of those terms will impact you is critical and they can be easy to miss. They may be buried on the third page of a big thick term sheet that you really can't skim over. It's critical that you go through and look at all of these. So I'm gonna talk through all of the significant terms you're likely to encounter and tell you which ones are beneficial, which ones are harmful, and where you should be pushing back on the investor. Welcome to Feel the Boot, the science of startups. I'm your host, Lance Cottrell, and I'm here to help you navigate the nearly vertical learning curve you're going to encounter as a founder. I know I have been there myself and I've helped countless other founders along their journeys. This episode is part of our playlist on fundraising, and I'll put a card up there in the corner to take you to all the other content we've created on that topic. We also have episodes on getting your startup started, pitching, running your business, insights you need to have as a founder, and interviews with investors and other founders and thought leaders in the space. Again, I'll put a link to the entire channel so you can get information on whatever topic you need at this point in your startup's journey. Because this episode is probably going to be a bit of a beast, I suggest that in addition to watching this video, you go and read the article that accompanies it, where I'll have all the same points laid out. I think that may be a better reference when you need to go back and look at it later. And I'll put a link down in the description to fill the boot where the article lives. You won't be seeing all of the terms I'm gonna talk about in every investment round. These really only come up when you're doing a priced round for stock. It doesn't come up when you're doing a safe or a convertible note. And that's really the whole point of safes and convertible notes is it allows you to bypass all of this discussion of complex terms and punt that down the road to assume that when you do finally have that equity round, that lead investor will be negotiating hard for the right kind of terms and will protect the safe note holders' interests. Let's start with my two biggest tips, bottom line upfront. And the first is, talk to a lawyer. This is not the time for you to be taking a do-it-yourself approach. Find an attorney who's experienced in startup law, has worked with many startups, seen lots of term sheets, and make sure they look at it as well as looking at the term sheet yourself. And the second issue is make sure you get a detailed term sheet. A lot of investors will just try to give you the very top line on the terms and say, we'll negotiate the rest of that after we agree on the term sheet. Not always a good idea because as soon as you sign that term sheet, you're typically going into an exclusive period with them where you agree not to be negotiating with anyone else. But that really takes away a lot of your leverage. You don't have the ability as easily to walk away. So the more ter terms you can get negotiated before you sign the term sheet, the better off you're likely to be. 
Now the term most founders are most interested in is usually valuation. Right? You want to know what your company is worth because that determines how much dilution you're going to suffer for the amount of money you're trying to raise. And this is a huge topic. I've done a couple of other videos just on valuation, so I'm not gonna get into it here, but I'll put links up to the first one and the second one. And you can go check that out if you want to get more insight into how valuations are set. But at the end of the day, the term sheet will need to specify at what price, what value of the company the person's investing. And that'll be expressed either as a pre-money valuation, which means what the company is worth right now before they invest, or post-money. So what the total value of the company will be after they put it in. It's important to know which one it is because that does impact significantly the dilution that you'll experience. Most investors, at least in the United States, are expecting to receive preferred stock in return for their investment. And one of the key things that makes stock preferred is the preference. And this will usually be expressed as a multiple. So you'll see someone saying, this has a one times preference, two times, three times preference. And what that means is that's how many times the investor's initial investment they can expect back before anyone else gets paid out, in particular, before the common stock and the founder get paid. Now, two or three times multiples on the preference are really abusive. We rarely see them, and if someone's in fact asking for that, that's really a red flag about that investor. But one times preference is very common and standard. Ideally, you'd prefer there be no preference, but that is unlikely to be something that you can negotiate. The other wrinkle on preferences is whether they are participating. So when your company is liquidated, either it's being sold, maybe under duress, or maybe this is a fantastic exit, the investors with a preference will have some choices. So one of the ways this can go is what's called a participating preference which means they get paid their preference, one, two times their initial investment, whatever that multiple was, and then they get to convert into common stock and also get their fair share of the company as another stockholder. So this is sort of a double dipping situation. And unless you're exiting at a very high valuation where the uh, preference numbers don't really matter that much, it can swing how much they get by a lot. This is considered kind of unfair and you should push back hard against participating preferences. A slightly modified version of this is what's called capped participating preferred. In this case, uh, they still get both aspects of this, but only up to a certain value. So let's say they are one times preference, but there may be a cap on that so that they don't get more than two times their initial investment or they have to be common stock. And so that limits the amount of damage that this can do to you. It does create a weird situation though, where there's a whole range of exit valuations where the investor gets the exact same amount, right? Once they hit that cap, say twice the preference, then they don't make any more money until the value that they get from converting their common stock exceeds that. So at that point, it's a straight line for them, which means they have no interest in pushing 
for a deal to happen at the high end of that range. In fact, if it looks like the deal is going to come through in that sort of spectrum, they may in fact want to push for it to be at the low end so the deal gets done more quickly and has less chances of sort of falling apart in negotiation. So your interests and the investor's interests may not be very well aligned. Now, what you typically see and what you want is non-participating preferred shares. And what that means is the investor has a simple choice. They can choose to take their preference, the multiple of their initial investment, or they can choose to convert to common stock, but they don't get to do both in any way. And so really it means that in a good outcome, they will always convert to common stock and participate along with everyone else in the upside that you've created. But if things are going badly, if the company's getting sold uh, because you've, you know, hit a bad spot, you're running out of money, it's somewhat under duress, the valuation's not great, it does mean they get paid first. And in those circumstances, there's every chance that paying them their preference will in fact take all the cash you get. And everyone else, all the common stockholders, all the founders will get nothing. You know, that's particularly the case if you don't even have enough to pay off that preference. But this is pretty standard and it's unlikely you'll be able to negotiate away from there being any preference on the investment. Investors will often ask for some form of anti-dilution protection that will kick in if you raise a round after theirs at a lower valuation. And the investor sort of feels like things ought to be moving up. And if you had a lower valuation on the next round, they would like to retroactively get in on that action. And that's an understandable wish. It means that things aren't going as well as they thought. Maybe you, know, you painted too rosy a picture. There's a couple of ways this can work. What you want, if you agree to this at all, and ideally you don't agree to anti-dilution, but depending, they may really force it on you. It may not be something you can get out of. You want a weighted average which means that the amount of anti-dilution effect for the investor depends on how many new shares you sold, right? They shouldn't get to revalue their entire investment if you bring in a $20 investor at some point, right? It's inconsequential. And so that shouldn't really make a big difference. But if the next round is really large, then it does have a large dilutive effect on that investor. They get proportionately more protection. Sometimes you'll see investors asking for what's called a full ratchet. And that means they get revalued 100% at the new lower valuation, which can balloon their ownership if this is a significant down round. That is a pretty abusive term. I recommend you resist that if at all possible. Another thing you want to make sure if you do agree to any kind of anti-dilution is that it should not include certain kinds of incentive comp compensation. So stock options, stock grants to employees, or stock that you're issuing to vendors or partners of various sorts. Right? Those sort of incentives are often granted at a somewhat lower valuation, often common stock rather than preferred. That should not trigger anti-dilutive provisions. I tend to think that when investors focus on the downside and preventing loss and anti-dilution, that it is a bit of a red flag and suggests inexperience investing in early stage companies. Because the reality is the results are usually pretty binary. Either the company does well and everyone gets a fairly substantial return, or things go badly and effectively everyone gets zero. There's just nothing left. 
and the gray area in between is not that significant. You don't see it happen very often. It's unlikely to move the needle on an investor's portfolio. And so focusing on that downside suggests that they're not focusing as much on the potential upside and you want them aligned with you on the vision of how you succeed not worrying about how they can scrape up some more crumbs when things go wrong often lead investors or major investors will request board seats as part of their investment and in this case you are agreeing as a side agreement to vote to give them those board seats when the shareholders are voting on board members a typical compensation would be, say, two founders for two seats and then the third seat going to the investor. Sometimes they'll suggest that it be the founder, the investor, and an independent third board member chosen by mutual agreement of the investors and the founders. And this is pretty typical. One thing I would say is it should sunset. So if you're bringing someone onto the board at the pre-seed level, if they drop below some threshold ownership, maybe 10%, they should be agreeing to relinquish their requirement for a board seat. In addition, if they don't continue to invest, if they don't maintain their pro rata ownership, they should probably agree to step off. They're no longer really bought into the company. Now that doesn't mean you have to drop them off the board, right? You may have board members who are adding a lot of value to the company and you want to keep them on because of the additional value they bring. Board members are not a bad thing. These are people who are deeply involved in your company, typically literally invested in the company, and will have experience and relationships, connections that they can bring to it. And they will be typically more active and involved than an ordinary advisor would be. One option, if you don't wanna give the investor a board seat or their investment doesn't really warrant that, is you can give them observer rights which says they're allowed to personally or perhaps send a representative to sit in on your board meetings and be involved in the discussions, but they don't get an actual vote. And so that can be a nice compromise between a board seat and no visibility into the board activities whatsoever. Many term sheets include pro rata rights. So this is the right of an investor to participate in future rounds such that they can maintain their fractional ownership in the company. So if they've got 10% of the company now, they can automatically invest enough in the next round if they want to, to keep themselves at 10%. And this is often not a bad thing. It keeps people invested. New investors often like to see the previous investors continuing to participate in the rounds because it's a positive signal, right? It says that someone who knows the company fairly intimately is still very bullish on what you're doing. Now, this is typically limited to only the larger investors. If someone's coming in with a very small investment, often you will exclude them from pro rata rights. And this should expire. If they're not participating in a round, if they don't exercise their pro rata rights in one round, they should disappear. They should not get to be kept on in perpetuity so that they you know, invest in this round, skip a couple of rounds, and then invest in say the C or D round to maintain their pro rata. Typically you can push back against that and insist that no, if they want the pro rata rights, they need to step up every single time. Now, sometimes investors will ask for super pro rata rights. So the right to invest more and increase their ownership in each round. And that can often be problematic for new investors, right? If the new investor is coming along and they have a target ownership percentage, they may 
want to invest a certain amount and having a big chunk of the round go to someone else may not be acceptable to them or just may not be palatable. So that can be problematic. Now, if there's room in the round, the investors always have the ability to invest more, but you don't necessarily want to guarantee it to them. That can screw things up. Savvy investors will want you to top up your option pool. They know that for you to grow, you're going to need to continue to be handing out options to your early employees. And they want to make sure that you have enough stock on hand to continue to do that. Often they're looking for you to have 20% of the company's total uh, issued and outstanding stock in that option pool. And they'll want you to top it up in advance of their investment so that this new stock that you're authorizing dilutes you rather than them. So there's two ways this can happen, right? They, it could happen before the investment or after the investment. It's better for you if it happens after the investment so everyone gets diluted equally, but typically they'll want to see it before. And often uh, they'll want to see an estimate of how much stock you're going to need to put into the option pool over the next, say, couple of years so they understand the dilutive impacts of the option grants to your employees over time and how that'll impact them as an investor. This topping up of the option pool is really neither good nor bad. If you're going to continue to hire people, it will need to happen eventually. What you need to do is just understand what that means for your ownership and dilution, whether it's before or after the investment, and take it into account when you're negotiating the valuation. You will often see on a term sheet something about dividends. What you want to see is that they are discretionary. That means the board can choose to issue dividends if and when it desires to. And for a startup, that typically means never. Dividends are often issued by large companies that are generating ongoing profits and they're redistributing that to the shareholders. As a startup, you're taking every single dollar you've got and pouring it into growth and trying to bring in more investment to continue to grow, right? So dividends are not really something you want to be thinking about. You may see cumulative dividends where you are committing to a certain amount of dividends to your investors, but you don't need to pay them now. So it just accumulates over time and eventually when the board deems it appropriate, it issues dividends, at which point the preferred shareholders are owed that cumulative amount of dividends that you've built up. And of course, you won't agree to do this until you have enough cash on hand. It's not ideal, but it's, it's not terrible. What is terrible is where there are required guaranteed dividends, where you're needing to pay your investors on an ongoing basis. And for most startups, that's terrible, right? If you are in a cash poor situation, and you probably are if you're fundraising, you don't want to have to then be turning around and cutting checks back to your investors. And if you can't, that can put you in a very difficult uh, situation, right? Do you need to issue them additional stock? You're going to need to negotiate over a barrel with your investors if you, for some reason, can't make those payments. Now, one term that you will almost always see is that if you issue dividends to any series of stock, you will have to issue pro rata dividends to everyone else. So per share, uh, everyone gets the same dividend at least. And that's quite reasonable, right? It would be pretty unfair to pay dividends to one group and then leave out this group of investors who just came in. So that's fine. But ideally, you'd like dividends to just be purely discretionary when you've got the cash, more cash than you know what to do with, which is a great place to be, you can then issue that out to your shareholders when you want. Many investors 
will ask for information rights. So you are then required on a quarterly basis, typically, to give a business and financial update on the state of the company. And typically this is restricted only to uh, owners above some threshold ownership. Uh, significant shareholders is what it's usually called. And that's quite reasonable. They wanna make sure that they understand how the business is going on an ongoing basis. But it does then obligate you to be putting out these reports on a regular basis. It's not really too bad. You should be generating this same kind of information for your own edification anyway. Many term sheets contain protective provisions. These are things that allow the shareholders certain extra control. Often it comes in the form of veto rights, either for all preferred shares or on a class-by-class -class basis. So Series A would be able to veto it, or Series B could veto it, or Series C. Ideally, you'd like to have all of the preferred shares voting as a single class so that if the investors feel like they're being taken advantage of, they can protect their rights. But you don't need to have to worry about each of them individually trying to veto a deal. Because in some cases, for example, your earlier investors might be very much in favor of an exit. But if an investor just came in and you're exiting at the same or less valuation than they came in at, they might try to make you hold out for a higher valuation or ask you to continue growing the company for longer and reject that deal. And that can be a problem. Now, these protective provisions or veto rights usually apply to a number of different scenarios. Most commonly, they include things like uh, modifying the articles of incorporation or bylaws of the company, issuing and authorizing new series of stock, uh, taking on substantial new debt, things of that sort that have the potential to create major impact for that investor. So these are fairly common and fairly reasonable. A more problematic right is when the investor can prevent the sale of a company. In the example I was giving before, you can see how that can give rise to conflicts of interest and cause the investors to try to shut down a deal that might be very profitable and advantageous for you as the founder. So you want to, at the very least, limit that right so that they can't veto the sale of a company if they're getting more than a certain level of return, let's say three to five times their money. Once they're getting at least that minimum amount, they have to, uh, they can't veto the deal. They can vote against it along with whatever other shareholders might want to, but it doesn't allow just that class of investors to torpedo something that, that really could be making a lot of money for everyone else. What you really want to avoid is allowing your shareholders to micromanage you. They should not be allowed to weigh in on ordinary hiring and day-to-day -day expenses. I've seen term sheets where they wanted the ability to veto any purchase above $10,000. That really makes it very difficult to operate as an executive in the business. So it's okay for them to have veto rights on the big issues, things that could really impact them, things like changing the number of board seats and so forth but don't let them get into the weeds and micromanage you. Sort of the flip side to these veto rights is what's called drag-along rights, where if some number of shareholders, some category of shareholders vote for something, everyone else can be forced to go along with them. So for example, if a majority of shareholders vote to sell the company, it can force everyone else to agree to that as well. Now, what you don't want is some minority group to be able to do this to the majority. So you would not want, say, the Series A or Series B as a single class to be able to 
drag everyone else along into a sale that was not to everyone else's best interests. But having basic drag-along rights is actually really useful because it means you don't necessarily need to chase down everyone to approve it. Once you get the majority uh, you know, of, of the shareholders or maybe a majority of the common and a majority of all of the preferred acting as a single class, then everyone else has to come along automatically. And that can really smooth the process of doing a big deal. One thing you probably want to add though is to require that the board of directors also approve any sale of the company to prevent some sort of shareholder coup the board, which is more active in the day-to-day -day management of the company, would also have to be in a favor of this and see this as something of benefit to everyone. And they have a fiduciary duty to, their, to all the shareholders, so hopefully that will put a bit of a check on any shenanigans. You may see a right of first refusal on transactions. Most commonly, this would apply to insider stock sales. So if the founders wanted to sell some of their shares to recognize some cash profits right now, take, take some uh, cash off the table, then the investor has first rights to that. So if someone comes in and says, I want to buy you know, a million of your shares at $5 a share, this investor would be able to say, actually, I want to take that. I want to take that deal. Now, that's not uncommon. It makes it much more difficult to sell your shares though, because if the buyer knows you have an investor with a right of first refusal, then they probably don't want to make an offer at all because they'll go to all the trouble of doing this deal and then someone else is actually just going to come in and scoop it out from under them. So if you did want to share, sell your shares, you'd need to go talk to that investor first, understand whether they would want to exercise their right of first refusal, then go out and get someone who'd be offering you, uh, offering to buy your shares at some price, and then again come back and re-clear it with the investor. So it does make things a little more complicated. If you do agree to something like this, make sure you carve out sort of internal transactions. So if you're transferring stock to immediate family or into a trust or something else, when you're doing family planning kinds of transactions that aren't actually selling your stock to some third party, but just kind of moving it around within your own personal economy, that should not give them a right of first refusal. Again, on the flip side of the right of first refusal is the right of co-sale. So if you are choosing to sell some of your stock and it seems like a good time to do it, your investor might also want to sell some stock. And so the rights of co-sale allow them to sell a pro rata share of their stock along with yours. So if you're selling 10% of your holdings, they'd be allowed to sell 10% of theirs. Uh, again, this is not an unreasonable ask. If things are going really well, but everyone wants to take a little bit of cash off the table, then they can participate along with you. Although it might mean that if the buyer only has a certain amount of money to spend on your company's stock, that you won't be able to sell as much as you were hoping to because you need to let everyone else get in on the deal. Some investors ask for redemption rights, which means they have the right to sell their stock back to the company at some fixed price, typically the price they paid originally. And normally this doesn't kick in until five years later. But the idea is it gives the investor an ability to unwind this position if it looks like you're not moving towards an exit. Normally you would then have three years to pay them back. 
so that it doesn't come and hit you hard. This is rarely exercised because typically if you're in a scenario where they want to get out, things are going badly and uh, there probably isn't any cash to pay them. But if your company sort of was planned to be a rocket ship to an exit and it turns out being a lifestyle business, this provides some protection for the investor. So it's not terrible, but you should avoid it if you can. Some investors want to see warrants. This is a right to purchase some amount of your stock at some future time at a particular price. Uh, it may be the current price or it might be at some higher price. This is normally a sweetener for your investors. So they say, we're gonna buy so much of your stock now, but if things are going well, we'd like to be able to increase our ownership by exercising these warrants you know, sometime over the next couple of years. Often, these are warrants for preferred stock, not for common stock. So they're not your typical warrants. And in fact, they might even be warrants for the latest series of stock. So the person would be able to jump in and get a deal on the most recent round. Uh, this is okay. You just need to be taking this into account, again, when you're thinking about valuation and looking at how this might impact your dilution if the person chose to exercise the warrants. Savvy investors are likely to require you to get certain kinds of insurance. If they're taking a seat on the board, they're almost certain to require that you get director's and officer's insurance. This protects them in case the board gets sued because of some action they've taken. It's not very expensive and it can come in really handy when things get nasty. So that's one that if you didn't already have director's and officer's insurance, about the time someone's asking is probably about the time you should be getting it. Because once you start getting investors, then the chances of one of them getting disgruntled and suing you starts to become meaningful. The other thing they may ask for you, whether or not they're taking a seat on the board, is that you get key man insurance. So this is life insurance on the key people in the company, typically the founders, maybe a couple of really key senior people on the executive team that pays out to the company so that if one of the founders who say also the CTO uh, gets hit by a bus while they were biking to work, it will pay out enough money, hopefully, to be able to recruit and hire a really top-notch new CTO to keep the company afloat and going. Many investors want you to cover some of their expenses. So they may want you to pay for their legal fees in drafting the investment with you. This always struck me as a little wacky that they're paying you and then wanting you to pay them back for their own expenses, but it's not terribly uncommon. It isn't a big problem. You just wanna make sure that, again, you take account of that when you're looking at the valuation that they're paying you. Also, make sure it's capped. Don't allow them to spend all the money in the world that they want on their lawyers. There should be some reasonable amount that you've agreed on in advance. The other thing they may ask you to pay for is uh, expenses related to their activities on the board. So travel, hotels, meals, things like that. Most board members, it's certainly most investor board members, are not paid. And even the outside board members are typically only paid in equity for their participation. But it's standard and common for them to expect that the company will pay for them to travel to your board meetings if you're holding them in person. At some point, in your very early investment rounds, you're likely to see the investor demand that the founder's shares be vested. That is, 
you don't get to have all of that ownership all at once and it comes in over four years typically it works very much like options do with four years and a one-year cliff so you get a quarter of your shares at the end of that year and then a 48th of your shares over the next uh, three years interestingly unlike options you get all of your stock but the company has a right to buy it back from you if you leave at some low price so that if you as the founder bail on the company uh, in six months then you don't get to keep your 50 percent of the company or whatever chunk you own this is particularly valuable in scenarios where you have multiple founders you've got a couple of co-founders two or three people owning almost all of the company if one of them decides that they don't like working there they have a different idea they want to pursue they want to actually get a big paycheck instead of just equity that'll pay off in five years and they leave you don't want that person walking away with a third of the company for this very small amount of time and effort they've put in place so this is actually not a founder unfriendly situation and because it's a right to repurchase it doesn't affect your control and voting rights in the company so even though you may have vested little or none of the stock you still vote all of it and so that gives you the control over the shareholder activity and over the board seats that you would have if it was never vested at all however this really should only happen once it's not reasonable for every round of investors to ask you to revest your shares so it's okay for it to happen once shouldn't happen every time also it shouldn't necessarily be all of your shares so if it's say the a round that this finally comes up in and you've been building the company for say three or four years you've already put in a lot of work it's unreasonable to act as though your contribution to the company was resetting to zero at this point so maybe in that scenario you only vest half of your stock and it's common to see numbers you know, anywhere from 50% up to 100% in how much is going to vest. If it's a really early investor and you're just getting started, expect to vest all of it. But later on, that's something you really can push back on. Because if you were to leave six months after that, when you've already worked on the company for four years, you certainly shouldn't be losing all your stock. When the investor presents you with this term sheet with all of these different details and you want to ask for a detailed term sheet, right? You want to make sure that you're getting all of these things negotiated up front before you give that exclusivity, ask them where this came from. Is this something that they rolled on their own or is it a standard term sheet? You really want to push for a standard term sheet for a couple of different reasons. First, the standard term sheets are unlikely to have really abusive terms. Right. They've been negotiated and used by many, many different companies, different investors and different founders. And so most of the egregious things will have been worked out of it. In many cases, the lawyers on both sides will already be familiar with the standard term sheets. And so there's a whole lot less time that needs to be invested studying it closely to understand the ramifications of each one of the clauses when they've seen it dozens of times before and it's less likely to have legal gotchas and loopholes right? when you're drafting a new contract it's easy to accidentally introduce something that will cause problems in some unforeseen set of circumstances but with a well-tested and used standard term sheet most of those events will have happened to someone else and they have been resolved and so the term sheet itself and all the legal issues around it have been polished 
And so you want to go for those. And there's a couple of them. I'm going to put links down in the description. Y Combinator has them. The Angel Capital Association has them. Uh, there's a few other groups. And so as long as they're pulling from a reputable, known, fairly neutral entity that's put these together, any of those would be an acceptable source for a standardized term sheet. But if they're coming at you with something that's pretty wacky, you're going to be spending a lot more money studying every single detail of what they're asking for. Watch out for investors that normally invest in later rounds, say B or C or later, coming in and investing in your pre-seed or seed round. Because if someone who re frequently invests later doesn't then step up for your later rounds, it's a huge red flag to other investors. It will make it much difficult to raise those later rounds and may seriously impact your valuation. Whereas if an angel investor who really only invests at the pre-seed st stage doesn't step up for a B round, that really doesn't send any signal at all because that's completely normal and common. The other problem is that investors that specialize in later rounds may be unfamiliar with what is standard in an early round. And so they'll have strange expectations, they'll be asking for terms that are not normal in those early rounds and can really cause a problem. They're also probably not used to this sort of chaos that surrounds early stage companies. And so having them on the board can be problematic because their expectations and what they're used to and the reality of being in an early stage startup just don't mesh very well. So you're going to end up butting heads. It can be a bad situation. So unless you know that they frequently invest in early stage companies, a late stage specialist, something to be avoided if you can. Thanks for watching this episode. I hope you found it useful and interesting. And if you did, give it a like. That tells the algorithm that you want to see more content like this. If you've seen a bunch, please give it a subscribe and ring that bell so you get notified each time new episodes come out. Getting more subscribers helps the channel a lot. YouTube gives us more access to new features. We can do links. It also shows it to more people. And the whole point of this channel is to help more founders. So I would really appreciate your support in that way. I encourage you to let me know what other content you'd like to see down in the comments or comment on the post over at Feel the Boot. While you're at Feel the Boot, join our mailing list. I send out special content. Of course, you get notified of all the new episodes coming out, but I also include in every single newsletter a link to my Calendly so you can get one-on-one -on -one coaching. I have office hours every week and you can come in and get answers to any questions you have about your startup process. I love talking to you founders and frankly, most of these episodes come out of the conversations that I have. And so, till next time, ciao.